Well, if you have your Bibles with you tonight, I invite you to open up to Psalm 106. And we're going to finish out, really, the, the trilogy of Psalms, ending up Book 4 of the five books or five divisions of the Book of Psalm. Uh, and so as we do, I just want to remind you, we began uh, back in Psalm uh, 104, and it was magnifying God for His sovereignty and sustaining over creation. And so it talks about creation and, and how the Lord God holds all those things together. Psalm 105 talked about magnifying the Lord for His promises, His covenant. Specifically, His covenant with the nation of Israel, right? And the promises that He had made. So it reminds us that God is faithful to the promises that He gives. Psalm 106, as we take a look tonight, is magnifying the Lord for His faithfulness and forgiveness. It's kind of going to contrast God's faithfulness with our unfaithfulness. Or let me simplify it a little further. God's faithfulness and uh, Israel's unfaithfulness. Before we would think Israel was more unfaithful than us, we just need to look in the mirror and consider some of the same things that we're going to talk about tonight in Psalm 106. So let's take a look at it. He begins the same way, magnifying the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, right? We're, we're, we're using the divine name of God. Praise Yahweh. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, or give thanks to Yahweh. And then a description of Him, of what, what God is like, attributes of God that are laid out for us here. So give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His mercy endures forever. So what you have laid out for us, He's saying, praise the Lord, give praise and glory to God for two things specifically. He mentions two attributes of God. His omnibenevolence, that means that God is good, and his eternal mercy, which is a part of God's omnibenevolence. That God is good, and he is eternally merciful. What we need to recognize is, we look at scripture, I think you can make the case that God is always willing to forgive, but man is not always willing to repent. And unfortunately, repentance is a prerequisite of forgiveness. Okay? God's, in order to have a right relationship with God, mankind has to acknowledge his sin, his need of a Savior. There's, there's an emphasis a lot of times in the church today on God's forgiveness. And we talk about God's forgiveness, but we tend to lose grip or lose direction in terms of repentance. Repentance is that attitude that man takes, that he says, I'm a sinner. All, all that's required of me to receive forgiveness is, to, is in essence, to, to bow my knee to the Lord and ask him, as Jesus told the story, right? He said, two men went down to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, said, Lord, thank God I'm not a dog or a Gentile or a loser like this guy next to me. You know, I'm thankful for all the things that you've done in my life. And he goes on his way. But the other guy, a tax collector next to him, beats his breast and just says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that one went away justified. That one, why? Because that's what repentance looks like. Repentance is acknowledging my position before a holy God. That I need his forgiveness. I need his mercy. So he's pointing out these two issues. The goodness of God, his omnibenevolence, and... 
His eternal mercy, that God's mercies last forever. And so he's thankful for that. And really the ground of our hope lies in the perfection of Yahweh. And and that perfection of Yahweh is laid out for us through the Psalms, is laid out for us in this way, that he's good, upright, full of integrity, righteous, just, gracious, faithful, loving, compassionate, and forgiving. Those are all descriptions that we've gone through so far, talking about what God is like through the Psalms. So placing our hope and our trust in Him is based on that ground of who God is. So look at verse 2. Who can utter the mighty acts of Yahweh? Who can utter the mighty mighty acts? God is so big. It's it's a concept in the beginning of verse 2 of the transcendency of God, which simply means God is wholly above and over everything we can imagine. The best good you can think of, God's past. You guys with me? Isaiah 55 says that the Lord is is high above us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Right? As high as heaven is over the earth, that's how transcendent God is to us. So so God is, is beyond good. God is beyond our ability to comprehend uh, the love of God. God is beyond all of those things. So who can utter the mighty acts of Him? God's so big. Who can declare all His praise? Is, would it be possible... To list out all the things God has ever done for his creation, I think we could probably spend all of eternity trying to do so. But then he says in verse 3, two things that are important in the life of those who follow him. What is that? He says, blessed are those, or oh how happy, oh how happy are those who keep justice and do righteousness. (coughs) Those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times well why why would that be something that he would point out well let's think about it for a minute oh how happy are those who become like the god they love right we love god then we love the things and the attributes of god and righteousness and justice are two of his attributes right there is god always just all the time is god always right All the time. Is he always righteous? Absolutely. In fact, when we're not sure about that, the problem is in our understanding, right? We don't, we just simply don't have all the information. God has a bigger picture that he is working off of, right? Than the picture we have. Again, that's what Isaiah 55 is talking about. One of the things we're going to see in this very psalm, you become like the God you serve. Oh, how happy are those who begin to take on the attributes of God. I'm not saying that we become God. I'm just saying we'll be more like him than we are like other things. Does that make sense? If God is loving, compassionate, forgiving, if God is good, if God is righteous, if God is just, won't those things be important to us as we worship and as we serve and as we follow him? As we, as we, as Jesus said when he called the disciples, right? Come and follow me. Where was he taking them? He's saying, hey, come on, let's go. I'm going to show you the path. Here's the path. Ultimately, the path that leads to the cross is the path of righteousness. It's the path of justice. It's the path of goodness. It's the path of love. So, when we follow him, those things will be expressed in us. And so the psalmist is declaring that, oh, how happy, oh, how uh, fulfilled a life is that begins to become like the God that they love. 
the God whom they serve. And then in verse 4, he begins a prayer. Look at his prayer. He says, remember me, O Yahweh. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have towards your people. Now we've seen God and his faithfulness in the previous chapter (coughs) with the nation of Israel. (coughs) And the fact that God will keep his promise. But here, what we're going to see now is the guy, the writer of this psalm, is saying, Lord, remember me that way. I, I want that relationship, that, that, that relationship that you have with your chosen, with your elect, in this case, talking about Israel. That relationship that you have with them, I, I want that relationship with you. Personal level, personal pronouns, right? When we come to the end of the chapter, we're going to see him use plural pronouns, and ask for that same thing now in terms of the nation as a whole, as we bring the thoughts together. So as we work our way through, remember me, O Yahweh, with the favor you have toward your people. First, he says, remember me. I want to be like them, God. I want you to remember me. One of the songs uh, that we're going to sing later on is, is, He Knows Our Name. He Knows My Name. The Bible says that if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, He knows me. He knows me. He knows my name. There, it's, it's not just a one-way thing. It is, it is uh, uh, two ways. God knows me. He knows who I am. Those hairs on my head, right? He, he knows everything about me. He knows my failures and the ways when I fall short. But just like he was faithful for the nation of Israel, the prayer is, be faithful to me. Because I'm not any better than the nation. I have... Similar struggles in my life. Remember me. Second thing he asked in the, in the middle of verse 4. And visit me. Oh, visit me with your salvation. The idea, <coughs> excuse me, the idea of remembrance carries within it that word, that Hebrew word carries within it the idea of visit. So they're very similar words. To be remembered and to be visited is, carries that same idea. So remember me like you remember excuse me, the nation of Israel, and visit me with salvation, just like the salvation with which you have been with the nation. For what purpose? In verse 5, here's why. Here's the purpose. That I may see the benefit of your chosen ones. That I might see the benefit of your elect, the benefit of your chosen people, of being part of your family. In other words, the book of Romans would describe it like this. All mankind, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, are children of wrath. Right? We're just waiting for the outpouring of God's wrath. We're in rebellion against God. But that changes, right, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. When, when that relationship changes, when regeneration takes place in our life, now we're no longer children of wrath, right? We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, where? To the kingdom of His Son. We've been moved, as it says in Ephesians, from those who were dead in trespasses and sin. He has done what? Made alive. Right? So we, it's this radical change that takes place. And that's what he's saying. I want to be part of that radical change. I want to be part of that radical change where I move from death to life. I want to know what it's like to stay out of the wrath of God and stand in that place where the, the love of God is coming down. Remember, the wrath of God is always against those who are 
unrepentant. And the goodness and love of God are always on those who are repentant. His mercy is eternal. So, he wants to see this, the benefit of being with his chosen ones, to move from wrath uh, to favor, to move from alienation to salvation. Secondly, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your, of your nation. So he wants to see a revival of the blessing of joy in the people. Now keep in mind, Psalm 104, 105, 106 are written during the exile. On Sunday mornings we just started a study in Daniel, which is dealing with what? The exile. <clears throat> the beginning of the exile, the children of Israel. Initially, Daniel and a small group go in captivity after the second uh, war with Nebuchadnezzar, t- tens of thousands go. And then after, uh, after Nebuchadnezzar and bef- before the fall of Belshazzar, uh, the rest of them go. And it's utterly, the nation and, and, and the temple and Jerusalem are utterly destroyed. So this is written during that time. So he's saying, look, we want to we wanna rejoice with the gladness of the nation. I want to see, you know, the restoration of Israel. Just like I want to see my restoration moving from wrath to, to blessing or, or goodness or joy, I want to be able to rejoice with the nation as, as the nation moves from wrath to joy. And so this is his prayer. And then the third thing that he asked for, that I may glory with your inheritance. In other words, I want to be able to celebrate together with all my brothers and sisters at the redemption of the nation. So these are the three things that he's looking for as he's praying to be remembered and visited. Why? That he would see the benefit of moving from wrath into a relationship of love, of favor, alienation to salvation, so that they could have a renewal, the blessing of joy together as a united people, and ultimately that they would celebrate together um, the final redemption of God over the exile. So this is what he's looking for. But then we have the issue, verse 6. <clears throat> so God, <coughs> excuse me, this is how I want you to move, but we have a problem. We have sin. Right? Remember I told you the only prerequisite to forgiveness is repentance, and that's what you see in verse 6. He says, look, we have sinned uh, with our fathers. He's not just blaming it on those who went before. Remember, the nation of Israel had this pretty steady decline into exile. They had a couple of bright points, but the last bright point was Josiah. Remember the eight-year-old who changed everything? Josiah came, brought revival as he grew. And as he ruled, he led the people to turn away from their idolatry and many of the things we're going to talk about today in Psalm 106. Well, this guy is not saying, look, it's not just their fault. He's saying, we have sinned with our fathers. We're just like them. We do the same stuff. We have some of the same issues and problems. We have committed iniquity and we have done wickedly. You're going to see Daniel pray a very similar prayer as we work our way through uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel, by the way, of whom the scripture never tells us a sin. doesn't mean he didn't sin. We just don't have any listed, right? If I say, think of a sin David committed, you're going to be able to come up with one, right? Or Abraham, or Moses. 
But Daniel, there's not one listed for us. Yet, Daniel would pray a prayer very similar. We have sinned. We have failed like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. This is a prayer our nation needs. But it's not from the unbeliever. Although I think it would be good for the unbeliever to enter into a relationship with Christ. Where does this prayer begin? Well, in this case, it begins with the nation of Israel. Where does it begin for us? In the heart of a believer. Who looks around at his world and recognizes, I have a part to play for where we are today. I'm a part of the problem. I'm a part of the apathy, or I'm a part of whatever the perceived issue is. We have sinned with our fathers. So we are guilty of the same disobedience. We are apathetic toward your chesed, your mercy. Look what he says in verse 7. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders, and they did not remember the multitude of your mercies. They did not remember your eternal mercy. Now remember that eternal mercy was predicated on what? An attitude of repentance, isn't it? Well, what is the one thing that ought to mark every believer? How about a life of continual repentance? Because we should at least, with the Holy Spirit living within us, have that nagging voice in us that, man, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have thought that way, uh, and I should then do exactly what the Bible tells me to do, right? First John 1 John 1.9, what's it tell me? Confess my sin, right? If we confess our sin, what's it say? He is faithful and just to <coughs> forgive us our sin and cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness, right? So, so he's saying, there's my eternal mercy. But how does it begin? What's the phrase it begins with? If we confess. If we confess, then we experience that mercy of God poured out upon us. And so, it says they don't remember His mercy. What that's saying is they don't remember His mercies. They start to forget what God's done for them. They're apathetic. In other words, probably one of the worst things we can do in a relationship toward God is apathy, which means I don't care. I got everything else going on, right? Life's happening. Stuff's going on. That's an afterthought. That's an afterthought with God. In fact, in order to make sure I keep God happy and all the other gods, the nation of Israel will just do their mandatory worship like they're punching a card. Right? I'm going to go down to the temple and I'll do my thing at the temple and then after that I'll go over to this altar of Baal and I'll make sure to drop off a a gift for Baal, and after that I'll go over here to the altar of Molech, and I'll make an offering. They would try to appease everything because they didn't care about any of them. Right? How do I know a husband doesn't care about his wife? Yeah, he'll be unfaithful. Doesn't the Bible use exact same terms? Read the book of Hosea. How does the Bible describe those who are apathetic toward God? The unfaithful bride of Hosea. Who tried to find solace everywhere else, but not with him. And I think a big part of that is apathy. Apathy. We neglect his mercy. Now remember in Hebrew, the word for his mercies, his loving kindness, his love. Oftentimes it's the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed means 
his, uh, I've shared with you before, it's, it's probably imperfect, but I look at it like agape in the New Testament. The agape love of God, the chesed of God in the Old Testament, very similar terms. That, that uh, expression of God's loving kindness. They don't remember it. They forgot it. They don't care about it. Because they don't remember, are you repenting? Are you living a life of confession? What was the purpose of worship for Israel? Why did they go to the temple to worship? Everything at the temple was about the same thing. What did you do at the temple? We brought an offering. What was the offering for? Your sin. What happened to the offering? It died. And what, then the blood was applied and there was um, you know, a certain amount that went to the family for food and a certain amount that went to the priest. But the purpose of it all was to pay for my sin. Was to deal with my failures. Was that my life as a Jewish person in the <coughs> first temple period was a life of repentance. Constantly looking for God's forgiveness. Because what does that tell me? According to the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, the purpose of that was to lead us to a point where we would recognize, you know, we need a permanent solution to this problem. Right? Not a, not a temporary one. This temporary one, I have to keep coming and bringing more lambs. And I don't have enough money for a lamb, so I have, so I have to bring turtle doves. Or I'm bringing something in for, for that offering of praise to God. You know, we need a sacrifice that's once for all. Who was Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ. Now, you and I, we don't, we don't offer ourselves uh, to continually bring sacrifice. All we have to do is 1 John 1, 9. It's an attitude of prayer asking God to forgive us for our sins. But the, but the walk is the same. You guys get what I'm talking about? The attitude in our hearts is still very similar, an attitude of repentance. Well, they had forgotten. It says they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. So that's very close to, to as God's doing miracles. Now we're going to get a view, we're going to get a little history lesson as we work our way through. <clears throat> I just want you to see, they were not perfect. By the time they got to the Red Sea, they were already complaining, right? That's not very long after the the Passover, yeah? The Lord takes them out. They get to Pihahiroth and Migdal, which uh, two places, I always call it between a rock and a hard place, with the Red Sea in front of them. Rock, hard place, and they can't go back because the army's coming. And they start complaining. So that's what he's saying. They rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea, but what happened? Nevertheless, he, God, saved them for his name's sake. Now this is physical salvation. We're not talking about a spiritual salvation. He saved them from the armies, right? The armies of Pharaoh are coming down. And even though the people didn't deserve it. Even though the people were complaining. What is it? God. Because he is eternally merciful. Right? He showed up. He showed up and saved them. <laughs> he saved them for his name's sake. And... That he might make his mighty power known. Now who's he making that power known to? Well then he's making it known to the Egyptians. Right? They're, they're going to experience it. Uh, the nation of Israel. They're going to experience it. What about you and me? Don't we get to read about it? Don't we get to see it? Isn't that going to be the 
<clears throat> the statement that he's going to go back to throughout the word of God? Am I not the God who saved you from Egypt? Who brought you out of Egypt? It's going to be the, the picture, the ultimate picture of God's salvation, his power to deliver from the, the covenant, the first covenant, the covenant of the law. Well, so he says, he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. What's that mean? He spoke, it happened. That's how God works, right? When Jesus was standing on that boat in the midst of the storm, what's the Bible say he did to the waves? He rebuked the waves. What's it say here about Yahweh? He rebuked the water at the Red Sea, and it stopped, parted, got dry. They, uh, and he said he led them through the depths, as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. So what we have in the Red Sea is two things. We have a picture of salvation and a picture of judgment. Salvation for some, judgment for others. What do I mean? Well, the nation of Israel walked through, but what happened when the Egyptians followed them? Yep, the sea closes up, and they drown. <clears throat> so you have God bring his judgment against <clears throat> the nation of Israel, or I'm sorry, against the, 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 the Egyptians, and he brings salvation for the nation of Israel. So he brings that judgment down upon them. Look how he says it. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. What's the very next thing that happened for the nation of Israel? They get to the other side. All the armies are wiped out. Did they have to fight? Nope. They have to pick up a sword. They didn't have to do nothing, right? They just had to walk to the other side. <clears throat> God did it all. God delivered. They got to the other side. They sang the song of Moses. Glorifying God for his deliverance. Right? We have a, a traditional picture for the nation of Israel, and I think all too often a traditional picture of our hearts, <coughs> which is momentary faithfulness. Right after the deliverance, there's a spike, right, in, in uh, church attendance. There's a spike in activity. There's a spike in serving. Man, God delivered. Look at this. But what happens as our life goes on? That spike tends to flatten out, don't it? It tends, it tends to get flatter. And that's what we see here. They have this momentary faithfulness. But look at verse 13. But they soon forgot his works. They soon forgot his works. Now he's going to go into a series of things that I think lead to that. And so <clears throat> there are several points that I'll bring out here in regard to why they soon forget his works. The first thing, number one, the first thing, they did not wait for his counsel. They're impatient. The Bible says all over, those who wait on the Lord renew their strength, right? It doesn't say those who just take off and do whatever because they can't be still. Doesn't the Bible say be still and know that I am God? Wait for my deliverance? But we struggle with that, right? We're human beings. We're pretty sure we should be doing something. We need to be doing something. And that's right. We do need to be doing something. Because that word, wait, they did not wait on his counsel. That word to wait on the Lord is a word of action. But it's not a word of action for you. It's a word of action from you. 
to the Lord. Think of a waiter waiting on someone in a restaurant. What is he doing? The waiter is serving the one whom he's responsible to for that period of time, right? Whatever table he has. What is it that God's looking for from us? That we would have that same attitude, that we would wait on him. What's that mean? I serve God. I serve him. In the mean, what, what, what did Daniel do when all his world got turned upside down? He just quit. It didn't work out. I prayed, God, don't take me away from my family, but I got took away from my family anyway. That's it. I'm done. No, what did he do? He waited on the Lord. What do I mean? He served God all the more. He said, I'm here. I'm, I'm going to serve you. He wouldn't take the king's delicacies, right? He set himself apart. He made himself separate. He separated himself <laughs> unto God. It's not, it doesn't matter what you separate yourself from. You get what I mean? We all get so excited about what we separate ourselves from. I don't, I don't drink. I don't chew. Uh, I don't smoke. And I don't date girls who do or what, however that thing goes, right? We, we get excited about, <laughs> about what we separate from. You know, all that stuff you separate from don't matter at all. Jesus said, and not what you put in your body that defiles the body. What defiles your body is already in you. The problem is your heart. But the, through the act of being made separate, I am saying, you're more important to me than this thing. What I, what I let go of doesn't matter. It's what I'm pressing into that matters, right? You, God. There's things in my life, <laughs> they're not listed in the Bible as sin that I don't do. Because I want to be closer to God. I heard a guy, I think it was John Piper. <clears throat> I think it was in his book, uh, The Hunger for God. Which is a, a great book. Um, but he talks about in there, one of the things that he does is he always leaves the last bite of his meal. He gets down, now I don't know how you guys eat, but I eat around that last bite the whole meal. I, 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 the last bite's planned. You take my last bite, you're going to lose a finger or something when you reach across. <clears throat> that last bite, man, that's holy to me. So when John Piper said, so what I do, I finish a meal just to, just to say to God that you're more important to me than this. I just leave the last bite. Now it's not, he's not saying if you do that, you will become holier. What's he saying? It's not important what I let go of. What's important is what I draw near to. The, the reason, the motivation, I suppose, behind whatever the act is. Then we would get our eyes off of all our work on it, and we'd get our eyes on the one whom we're trying to draw close to. You get what I'm saying? And so, so we see they were, <clears throat> they were impatient. They didn't want to wait on the Lord. They were, wouldn't serve God. Look, is there any shortage of ways to serve God around here? Trust me, there are no shortage. If you're thinking, oh my gosh, I wish I knew of a way that I could serve God, just say, Jackie, I want to serve God. I'll, we'll come up with one. We'll send you out with the guys on Friday that go down to Planned Parenthood, <clears throat> do outreaches to the mosque. We'll talk about going and volunteering over at uh, the Pregnancy Crisis Center. What's it called now? Stanton Healthcare. <clears throat> we'll talk about taking opportunities to, to serve the children, talk about taking opportunities to serve the folks over at the convalescent home, we don't have a shortage of stuff. You want to serve, just say, I want to do something. 
And we'll give you something to do. It's not hard. The harder part is getting to the point where you say, yeah, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to serve God in some way. So they were impatient. Second, they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. What's that mean? They were ruled by lust. They were ruled by what they want. They had a runaway wanter. Anybody ever have one of those? I want this. I want them. I want that. They're ruled by their lust. In fact, the Bible tells the the lust that they were ruled by, they were sick of having manna, or bread from heaven. They were sick about what God had supplied. They wanted quail. So God gives them what they want, right? God gives them what they want. Look what it says. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. This is what I... I write little notes in my Bible. This is what I wrote next to it. They, they satiated their desires and took, um, they took what they craved, but the skeleton at the feast was them. What they're destroying was their self by getting what they want. By having their... Was there anything wrong with having quail? No, quail's pretty good. You guys like quail? I like quail. Tastes good. The problem wasn't... That, the problem was the opposite of what we talked about a moment ago. They're ruled by their lust, but their lust, their desire, wasn't for God. Their desire was for something else. In other words, I'm unsatisfied in my life right now, and if I only had that, I'd be satisfied. And those of us who have lived any time at all, know that's a lie. How many times have you said that? You've said, "Uh, if I had that, I'd be happy, and you got it. And maybe you were happy for a season. But at some point, you, you come back to the same old grind, right? <clears throat> I know people who have exchanged partners in marriage multiple times. Why do they do it multiple times? Because everybody else is screwed up? Because I'm screwed up? Sure, it's all true. At the end of the day, what's the reality of marriage? It's work. It's work. It's no shortcut. You gotta, you gotta want to work at being a partner for life. Yes, you gotta be willing. To, you gotta want to do those things. So, what was their issue? They wanted something other, something else. That's the problem with lust. In Romans chapter six, around verse 10, 11, 12, something like that, the Bible says to not let sin reign in your hearts, because you will follow its desires. What's desires? The desire of sin. Think back. Cain and Abel. Remember the story? So we got Cain killing Abel. The day before, Cain and Abel bring an offering to God. One's is accepted, the other's rejected. I won't get into the whys or the wherefores. It doesn't make any difference. <clears throat> one's accepted, one's rejected. God looks at Cain as Cain is leaving. He says, Cain, why are you so downcast? What's going on in your heart? Already Cain wants to kill Abel, right? He's going to do it in a few hours. Already he wants to kill Abel. God says, Cain, sin is at the root of your heart and its desire is to rule over you. Sin is going to place in your heart a desire 
But, Je- but, but the Lord said, you should rule over it. Don't let it happen. What, what desire took hold? I'm going to kill my brother. He didn't need a gun, did he? Guns are not required. They're not necessary. Back then, he just used a rock. He just hit him with a big rock. And he killed his brother. Why? Because he wanted, he had a sinful desire in his heart. Sin reigned in his heart. The Bible calls us not to let sin reign in our heart. How is it that that happens? When we are ruled by our desires. When we are ruled by our desires. And our desires are not for the Lord God. The next problem, so we got forgetful, impatient, ruled by lust. Uh, Number four, we got envy. When they envied Moses in the camp, and Aaron the saint of the Lord, the earth swallowed up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company, and the flame burned up all the wicked. So there was this envy. What was the envy? Why do they get that special deal? Why is God always talking through Moses and Aaron? I mean, they're no better than me. That's a true statement, isn't it? Yep, they're no better than you. Well, I don't think that they, they should be the one. But who picked Moses and Aaron? Oh, God did. Oh, okay. So now your rebellion's not against Moses and Aaron. Who's your rebellion against? God. So they wanted to do a test. We want to know really who God picked. So God made it perfectly clear, right? While you guys are standing here, the earth will open up and swallow a bunch of you, and those are the guys I'm not picking. Yeah? Pretty simple. Before that, they did the rod that budded, right? They put all the rods in the tabernacle. Aaron's rod budded. God said, I picked him. They were still bickering, so the earth opened up and swallowed them all up. He purged all the wickedness, right? Then, then there was no more wickedness. Is wickedness... <coughs> <coughs> Is wickedness something that's external? What's the problem? Where's wickedness live? Right there, right? What's the Bible say? The heart is the most wicked place on earth. Whose heart? Everybody else's heart? No, everybody's heart. Right? It's right there. Unless that heart is regenerated, unless that heart is restored by the love of Christ, unless that heart is renewed through a relationship with Him, it's wicked. Period. So, the Lord brings that judgment against that envy, but it doesn't take the wickedness out. Look at verse 19. They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped the molded image. So then they move into idolatry, right? Making God into an image. You know, mankind has struggled with this concept forever. And everybody tells me, it's a cop-out. But I don't think it's a cop-out. It's just reality. What is that reality? God is transcendent. He transcends your reasoning. No? You mean to tell me the God who creates everything and sustains everything and holds it all together, the God who knows every thought, the God who, who, is, who is wholly other, who is everywhere omnipresent at all the time, that that God's not transcendent to our understanding? So what does man try to do over and over and over again? Make a God he can understand. What was a God they could understand? Golden calf. I can understand the golden calf. I can see him. I know where he's at. I can, I can, 
I can, because I can visualize and I can, I can do something here, I, I just make this a calf. This is something strong. And we're talking about the strength of God. Well, the problem is whenever we emphasize one attribute, we always do it to the negation of all the others. That's why God says, don't have any molded image. You can't make an image of me. I'm a little too big. I'm a little too beyond. So I'm condescending to you and I'm, I'm expressing to you these, these concepts of who I am. But even in your best day, you're only going to get a bit. Because I'm pretty big. Right? So, that shouldn't be shocking to us. I think sometimes we, we are frustrated that we can't fully understand everything God does. <coughs> wow. He's transcendent. He's bigger than we are. So he doesn't want us to make a, an image of him. Because when we do, we're going to mess it up. We're going to negate something else. Think of, of nowadays, what's, one, what's, an, what's an image we might make of God? We build this God of love. Is God love? 1 John 4, 7, 8 tells us God is love, right? I just read you at the beginning of this that God's omnibenevolent, which means all loving. But he's also all justice and all righteousness. He's also wrath. He's also all these other attributes that the word of God lays out for us about him. And he's all of those all the time. So we just focus on one where we, tr- we tend to negate others. What do I mean? Well, there's a move in the world today called universalism. The universalist salvation. What's that mean? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. And what a universalist says is, look, the reality is the death of Jesus Christ bought salvation for everyone. Whether you believe or not, God's blood paved the way everyone's saved. What are they emphasizing? God's love. There is no hell. There is no judgment. There is no none of that stuff. It's just all love. What have we done? We made God into an image. It's just not as obvious. We don't see a golden calf. Right? We just built a theology about a God we could, we could relate to and understand easier. And the scriptures that don't line up with what we say, we just put them out. And we just hold on to the ones that we like. But God, in His Word, in God's revealed Word, we have the whole picture. And so God says, don't make an image. I'm all of this. I'm at all. And I'm big. And I'm beyond your understanding. But that doesn't mean God doesn't want us to know Him, does it? Sure, He wants us to know Him. Paul says, I, I pray, in Colossians, I pray always that you would know His will. And that you would walk in His will. And that you would come to know Him. And understand Him and grow in that knowledge of Him. So that's a a lifetime pursuit, right? We just want to be careful. I'm not making a God in an image. I'm I'm not building a golden calf. So they changed the glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. And they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. There was no calf there on the day of the Red Sea, was there? No calf. Wondrous works in the land of Ham. Awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he's going to destroy them. God said, if we read it in, in, uh, in Exodus, God said, you know what, Moses, I'm done. I'm going to wipe them all out and I'll just start over with you. What did Moses do? Remember I told you this is important. 
You spend time following God and serving God, you start to take on what? The, the attributes, the attitudes of God. So what does Moses do? He stands in the gap for the people. Isn't that exactly what Jesus does for us? Moses stands in the gap and says, No, Lord, don't wipe them out. And he prayed for them, and God forgave. Moses stood in the gap. First picture of a mediator we have in Scripture. There's one God and one mediator who? The man Christ Jesus, right? Jesus Christ is the mediator. Why can he be the only mediator? Because he's a God-man. He's God in the flesh, and he's man. So he puts his hand in man's hand, he puts his hands in God's hand, and bridges the gap through which we can now enter into a relationship with the Almighty. One mediator, pictured by Moses. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he would destroy them. Next we come to the, <clears throat> the sixth issue. We leave idolatry. <coughs> we come to unbelief. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word. Oh, so unbelief. Remember, we were talking about how is it they became forgetful. They were forgetful, impatient. They were ruled by lust. Envy held them up. Idolatry, they're making God into their own image. And then unbelief. They didn't believe what God said. We're at Kadesh Barnea. God said, go into the land, I'll give it to you. What'd they say? Oh no, there's giants over there. That's too big. That's too much. They complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of Yahweh. Therefore, he raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness. So what happened to that generation? They perished wandering for 40 years, right? But look, he links it in verse 21. And to overthrow their descendants among the nations. In the same way that that generation dissipates in wandering through the wilderness... The generation of the exile, who had been all caught up in all that idolatry, is going to die out in the nations, in Babylon. Same thing he did there, same judgment. We're going to walk around in the wilderness until this generation is gone, and the next generation I'm going to bring into the land. I'm going to put you, this generation, into exile, and when that generation's gone, I'm going to bring their kids, and I'm going to take them back into the land. You get what God's saying? Same thing both ways. A result of unbelief both times. Why did they go into idolatry, guys, in Babylon? They wouldn't believe the prophets. Well, Jeremiah talked to them a million times. This is what God's doing. Just go with it. But they wouldn't believe him. They wouldn't believe him. And so he scattered them in the lands. Verse 28. And they joined themselves also at Baal Peor. And they ate sacrifices made to the dead. So they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Remember Balaam? Balaam, this is the story of Balaam. Balaam goes, tells the king, look, God's not going to let me curse the people, so I'll tell you what to do. Send all your pretty girls down there. All the young men will run after your pretty girls, introduce to them idol worship, and they'll stumble and fall. That's what they did. That's Baal pure. They sent the pretty girls down, the young men fell for the pretty girls, and... A plague broke out. 24,000 people died as a result of Balaam's instruction to the king to cause God to curse his own people. What was their issue? (coughs) (coughs) What was the problem? Apostasy. Worshipping 
False gods turning their back. Apostasy is to turn your back on the real and go after the false. What happened? They're there following God. Oh, God, you're everything to me. Pretty girl walks by. Oh, what was I doing? And off they went to their own destruction. Was God really everything? Well, obviously not. Obviously not. So God brings this plague. But look what it says. It says in verse 30, Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. That's a nice way of telling you the story. They're all praying for forgiveness. Lord, forgive us. Wow, we're, 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 they're coming in an attitude of repentance. And as they're all praying, this guy chasing this pretty little girl goes running by into his tent. And Phineas is like, are you kidding me? We're, we're all sitting here praying for an attitude of repentance. And this guy just grabbed the girl and ran her to his tent. So he runs in there with a spear and finished it. The Bible says he, he stuck them both through the belly into the ground, and God stopped the plague. Well, that's crazy. What was going on? Well, all I know is, Phineas was serious about following God. He was serious. He wasn't going to let those, those things continue. And that's what stopped the plague, man. That's what stopped all the things that were going on. He killed an Israelite and a Midianite woman together, and the plague was stopped. And that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. Phineas was, becomes a, <clears throat> a hero to the people because he stands up for God. So you have an example. Moses, which really is a great type of Christ, right, who stands in the gap for the people that God wants to wipe out, and God delivers them. You have Phineas. How is he delivered? He's delivered by bringing God's judgment. Both are forms of deliverance, aren't they? Which one's better? Well, you wait long enough and it'll be the sword. Won't it? What's the book of Revelation full of? And a third of the people died. And a fourth of the people died. And another third of the people died. And all the fish died. And all the grass was burned up. And all the trees were laid waste. What is that? That's judgment. God's going to cleanse one way or the other. We can all either cleanse by the word of the gospel, or we can just sit back and wait for judgment. But one of those two things is going to bring about cleansing. Yeah? But we find ourselves in a period now where we know <clears throat> the attitude of judgment can be on the horizon. What has God asked us to do? Hasn't he asked us to be like Moses? Didn't he say through Solomon what would happen if his people turned their back on God? We said, what if my people will humble themselves and pray? What if they'll stand in the gap for each other? Ezekiel. Ezekiel said God looked to and fro to find someone who would stand in the back in the gap and he found no one. To stand in the gap like Moses and say, I'm going to intercede for the people. I'm going to pray for their revival. I'm going to pray that God would move in this generation. I'm going to pray that God would accomplish these things. This is what God's called us to, that his divine judgment would not take place. Now he goes on, verse 32, and he angered him also at the waters of strife, of Meribah. So this is number eight, pride. Pride led them to forget. Pride is a form of rebellion. This is the fall of Moses. The people were <clears throat> rebelling against God. Moses got mad. Does, is the righteousness of God accomplished in the wrath of man? 
I don't think you're going to find too many cases. I can't think of any. The Bible actually declares that statement. The righteousness of God is not accomplished by the wrath of man. In other words, when man freaks out and loses his temper, it's not ever good. What happens? Well, Moses strikes the rock. What happens to Moses? He never gets to go into the promised land. Right? At least not alive. So, so it was his pride. Moses' pride. got they, People got on his pride. And so he responds in anger. And it says, because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. Verse 34, we go back to idolatry. It says, they did not destroy the peoples uh, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. What's it mean? Mingled with the Gentiles. They were not holy. They just did what everybody else was doing, and they learned from them. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. So they served false gods. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. And they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. Another way they forgot God? More idolatry. <clears throat> the, the, the killing of innocent blood. By, anytime the Bible's talking about innocent blood, it's talking about children. The sacrifice of their children. Their children that were being sacrificed. I know we would do nothing so horrendous today. Right? So what happened? How did God deal with this idolatry? The exile. The exile. That's what we've been studying on Sunday morning. Therefore the wrath of Yahweh was kindled against his people, so that he abhorred his own inheritance. So what does God do? He gave them into the hand of the Gentiles. It wasn't because the Gentiles were better or something. What, did, what happened? God, in his sovereignty, gave them. God gave them. That's why I say God gives us the leadership we deserve. That's what he gives us. He gave them to the hands of the Gentiles. He gave them to the hands of those who hated and ruled over them. And their enemies also oppressed them. Isn't that what the world looks like now in terms of its view toward Christianity? Gave them into the hands of the Gentiles. Gave them into the hands of their enemy. They oppressed them. They hated them. They ruled over them. They're a better description of really, at least in the United States, what the view is toward those crazy Bible-believing fundamentalist weirdos. Sounds like God's judgment. And they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low in their iniquity. All the failures of man. That's a lot of failures of men, right? A lot of problems, a lot of sin, a lot of failure, a lot of rebellion, a lot of issues. What's the next verse? Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. What? God's still loving. His mercy is still eternal. He's not fed up. He didn't give up. God's love is not extinguished. When he heard their cry, look at that phrase in verse 44, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. What I tell you, eternal mercy flows when repentance comes from the lips of God's people. Whose people? God's people. When they repent, he hears them. And it starts that whole progression. God pouring out his mercy 
God pouring out salvation. God bringing redemption. And he says, and for, their, and for their sake, he remembered his covenant. So what happened? They repent, and what happened? First, he regarded their affliction. Then he remembers his covenant. And finally, he relented according to the multitude of his mercies. What's that mean? That means that judgment is forestalled. That means that the people in the exile get brought back into the land. That means God continues to move forward to see his kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God moving and working in that regard. He also made them to be pitied by all those who took him away captive. Think about what happened. These exiles who were hated by the Babylonians, hated by the Assyrians. Then the Medo-Persians come in and what happens? Cyrus. God says through Isaiah the prophet, a hundred years before Cyrus is born... God says, there's going to be a, a, a servant of mine born. His name's going to be Cyrus. And he's going to let my people go. And what happened? The hearts of the people that the, the held them captive turns toward pity and they let them go. They let them go. Who did that? God did that. God did that. Nehemiah was a cupbearer for one of the most powerful kings of history. And he went and delivered the people to the land and came back and finished out his days as cupbearer. Arctic Xerxes. But as he does so, God is saying, I made them to pity the people so that he would, so that they would let them go, that they had carried away captivity. And so he ends in this prayer. Remember, earlier he said, remember me. Now he says, save us, O Lord our God. Save us. Gather us from among the Gentiles. To give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. So that prayer moves from personal to plural. From me to us. That's how it's supposed to move. From me to us. That's how we pray for our nation. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. That ends book four. Let's pray. Why don't you stay with me? Let's pray.